Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. This week, we have another fantastic interview for you guys to listen into. Beth Kindig is the lead tech analyst with the IO Fund, one of the highest performing tech-focused stock portfolios in the world. She's also well-known as prolific writer, commentator, and public speaker in the investing world, contributing her expertise to the likes of MarketWatch, Forbes, The Motley Fool, and VentureBeat. A few weeks ago, Emmett sat down with Beth to chat about their shared love, investing. In the interview that follows, you'll hear them discuss their thoughts on the current markets and what investors should do in such volatile conditions, why Bitcoin could still be one of the best investments you could make for the next 10 years, and a stock playoff where Emmett quizzes Beth on some of the market's most talked about stocks to find her eventual winner. Of course, if you listen to this in the My Wall Street app, you can also get some bonus content from this interview, including the one investment that Beth is most excited about right now. It's one that's really going to surprise you. Stock Club will return as normal next week, but for now, sit back and enjoy this great interview. Beth Kindig, analyst, writer, broadcaster, public speaker, and above all, investing black belt at IO Fund. Welcome to Stock Club. Thanks, Emmett. It's really good to be here. Beth, before we dive into a shopping list of great questions, which were mostly provided by the My Wall Street community, could you tell me a little bit about your career to date? Sure, absolutely. I would say that, you know, my career started 10 years ago in Silicon Valley. It was at the time that tech became the most valuable company in the world. It was around that time that tech overtook oil as the most valuable company in the world. And the startup scene was burgeoning. It was unbelievable. The number of startup conferences occurring back to back all day long. And you could truly walk, you could truly run through, you know, a couple hundred products a year because of just, you know, the, the density of it. What I began doing first, I had a small stint as a venture capitalist scout, which was really helpful to at least see how VCs think about emerging tech. And then I actually thought there was a great need for startups to discuss how they stand out competitively. That's the always the number one risk across all tech companies, all tech products is the competitive landscape. Uh, you will have 30 cybersecurity companies, but then you'll have an additional 30 uh, mobile application security. So if you can't clearly differentiate yourself competitively, you have no chance. So I worked with them on discussing thought leadership articles on how their products stand apart. Some of the people that I was speaking to at that time actually are Chris Larson of Ripple, some of the bigger gaming companies. Gaming was over, was actually surpassing Hollywood in revenue for the first time, things like that. And uh, many, many emerging startups that have gone on to be public. And I would just say like the one thing that might separate me as actually thinking about this the other day is I think I've written more about tech than maybe, maybe any, anyone in the world. Like I, I, a tech crunch editor would probably have more articles under their belt that would be shorter form. Mine are very in depth. I moved into a developer evangelist role, which is an official 
term for the person that sits between sales and engineering. And what that role does, and I did that role for six years, is they bring the technology that the company is creating to the masses. And so they speak at, you know, I spoke at conferences. I was constantly writing press articles uh, and I worked at a holding company. So there were 12 emerging products. Uh, one of them was a genomic sequencing product, uh, data management mm -hmm. platform, mobile app security, things like that. So these are 20, 30 page white paper reports that were bringing the technologies to the market, securing very large partnerships between maybe auto manufacturers who want mobile application security. So just a ton of analysis, tech, competitive analysis, doing it at such a rapid rate that um, I was thinking the other day, I, I don't know who else has really done this much for this long. You could look at journalists, but I think I was more at the front lines of, you know, actually bringing the product to the market, if that makes sense. So. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. And so have you written more tech papers than, than you've read? Because I've definitely recorded more podcasts than I've listened to. <laughs> I was, I'm a voracious reader. So um, I read all the time. Uh, I barely mm. watch TV. So I would say like, it's probably equal. I will say though, like how I got into the public markets was around 2018. It became very clear to me that the market may not understand tech products as thoroughly as I had imagined they did. So Facebook was the biggest, was a moment where I realized around Cambridge Analytica that the markets didn't actually understand Facebook's product. And I thought maybe there'd be a need for someone who could be really thorough, understand the nuances and bring what is the product differentiation within tech verticals uh, to public markets. And it went really well. People started to really respond to what I was writing. And I think it was the response that kind of made me realize that there was a gap that maybe I could, mm. you know, you know, no serve. doubt. Yeah. Well, before we go deeper into that, Beth, let's start with a very big picture. The S&P has more or less doubled in the last five years. However, when you strip out the top few, the giants, the tech giants of today, there's certainly an uglier picture, especially in the last year or so. What are your thoughts on the market today? Are you a buyer, a seller? Or a wait to see her? I think that's a great question to start with because I think it's on everyone's mind. Not only has the S&P more or less doubled, but the NASDAQ has doubled the S&P. So if you take like a real like tech-focused bucket, it is up about 200% over the last five to six years. With that said, the NASDAQ will see frequently, frequently enough that you need to be prepared for it if you're in tech, 17% drawdowns. Um, and that's just the broad, you know, that's just the broad index. So you can see there's obviously more volatility within individual names. So I think the key point is, you know, you were referencing five years. I'm referencing five to six-ish with the NASDAQ having 200% returns. Keyword being five years. I think that the problem is most people like to say they're long-term investors. They hit some bumps around volatility, market drawdowns, and they're suddenly looking at a performance of November to April, roughly five, uh, what is that? Six months, five, six months. So, you, you know, if you go and talk to a financial uh, advisor and you say, I want to go invest in stocks. And the first question they're going to ask you is how soon do you need the money? And if you say mm -hmm. I need the money within a year, they're going to say, don't touch stocks. And if you tell them you want to touch text, you want to get into tech stocks, they're definitely not going to let you put money in that you need back out in a year. Mm -hmm. So that's just kind of, it's like, we all know that I think like in discussions, but when it happens, it sort of creates 
so much, so much fear, right? Everyone, you know, the fear greed index. So uh, there's a reason why there's a fear greed index (laughs) and it tends to be a really accurate, um, you know, measurement of where the market is right now. Um, and like where potentially it could go because fear usually goes too far in one direction and greed goes too far in the other direction. I've been a buyer, uh, to answer your question. So the reason is that we work as a team. So we have a technical analyst on the team and his conviction is that we should see a higher, uh, SPX of around 5,500 before we go to a new all-time low of 3,500. So it'll, it'll, Mm. it'll, it'll move around. I mean, it's going to be range bound. Um, It doesn't, nothing's linear in the market. It's not going to go directly in one direction, only uh, up or down, but as it makes its way, we believe it'll make its way upward uh, at least one more time. But you've definitely described your funds investing approach and, and one of Horizon, a service that I run, one of our members, Ronan Motier said that from a previous interview with yourself, he believed that your approach is a long-term vision, but your buys and sells are informed by a technical analysis. Is that true? Would you agree? So yes, I would say this is how I would frame the way that we've approached an all tech portfolio is that a fundamental analyst can tell you what company can overcome an earnings miss or what company competitively uh, is going to outperform or what financials, you know, are supporting growth in the future. But what a a fundamental analyst or a product analyst cannot tell you is the sentiment of the market. You know, Shopify is very similar. You know, I think that there's been some slowing growth, but Shopify has been hit pretty hard, right? But Shopify Mm -hmm. overall, from my perspective, is still a very strong company. So why did it sell off 50, 60%? And that tends to be a victim of market rotation, uh, tech growth is very usually very hit hard by market rotations. Quants are moving into sectors, moving back out of sectors, and tech happens to be one that probably has a good amount of gains for ma- machines. So we see mm-hmm. a lot of rotation there. And so in order to beat machines when you're um, more of a human, uh, <laughs> more of a human, <laughs> when you As are we human, tend to be. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as we try to be anyway. Yeah, as we try to be. Um is you know, making sure that all that's all that all those three are lined up. You product your fundamentals and then your technicals. Um mm. because it'll usually it, nothing's going to be perfect. So instead of beating yourself up over buying at the top, the question is how many of the 20 stocks you bought were bought at the top? If it was only two or three, that's pretty good. You know, and mm-hmm. if your allocations are pro- proper allocations, then it shouldn't be that big of a hit to your portfolio if the allocations were carefully chosen with risk reward in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll swing back to Shopify at the bottom of this conversation, but I like to just stay kind of outside the world of stocks just for a moment. I've prided myself on buying disruptive tech and companies before the majority and holding them for a very long time. But I am still staring at crypto like a village idiot. You, on the other hand, have been, I understand, a believer and an understander and a buyer of crypto for quite a while. Can you pitch to me why I should buy Bitcoin in my portfolio or indeed if I should buy Bitcoin in and around now? Yes, I can. Uh, The dollar is down... um... 
like 90% over the last 100 years. So I would argue the dollar is the worst store of value ever in history. So what I'm alluding to is that centralized, the centralized financial system is broken. And the people who probably understand it better than you or I are the global populations. So I think we can have confirmation bias, which is I use an iPhone. I want to buy Apple, whatever. I drive Tesla. I want to own Tesla, stuff like that. I think with Bitcoin, we need to like broaden and look at who were the most rapid adopters on the ground. And we saw Venezuela, we Mm. saw Turkey, we saw El Salvador and even Japan at one point. So the minute that as far as like, complete utter corruption within a, you know, a government or something, whenever that occurs, people flee to Bitcoin. And Mm. then when there's hyperinflation, such as Venezuela, they have obviously bought and moved into Bitcoin because even if it's down 30, 40%, the currency was down much more or was inflated much more. So I would say first and foremost, I think it's really important to broaden the view and look at how many people are in poverty and, and, and think through why don't they have bank accounts? The, there's they're called the unbanked the majority of people living in poverty will not have a bank account because they don't trust the banks in the country they live in el salvador when the country gave out like i think it was 300 of free bitcoin within the matter of a couple of weeks more people had a crypto wallet than have a bank account which speaks volumes about the trust people have with their governments and their banking systems so we have that and like there's, and I'm, go, I'm giving you like a direct TAM total addressable market because you have to have that equation. You can't just have an ideology around centralized finance. You have to, and you know, maybe decentralized is better. You have to like think, are there actually people using, using it, buying it, storing it? Yes, there are. Bitcoin though, more than anything is a secure protocol. It's more secure than 10,000 than 10, banks combined. And so there's also... The way that decentralization works is now like, so I've given you the total addressable market. The next one would be what pain does Bitcoin solve? Well, if we were to remove all of the fees that centralization requires from us, such as if I have like a hundred bucks in my bank account and then I go and I buy something and they charge 3%, even though I have the cash in my bank account, but because we're all digital now, it starts to really add up and basically it can really reduce middleman fees. And that's why financial institutions and even bonds and things like that are some of the first adopters. I would then also look within the more developed countries. I would look at the generations that are younger. I think there's a lot of evidence that the system is probably hurting them the most. And so I would look at that demographic as key to the proliferation of crypto. If you look at how, like, I know that uh, when I went to school, you could easily get a degree for about $20,000, $25,000. I was like the last year to really graduate around that cost point, that point, price point for for a degree. They are now for a simple bachelor's degree up to $100,000. It's insane. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. cost to go to school are up 400%. So something's not right. A lot of people would say that you know, you know, cost of living has gone up, wages are flat, things like that. But ultimately, where is all of that money going when kids are paying for their degrees? And um, if you were to remove some of the middlemen around, you know, some of that tuition, would that help? Things like that. 
so I just think there's a lot of pressure, you know, being built up, whether it's those, you know, low income poverty line, and then you've got, you know, the younger folks, and then you've mm. got just the security of Bitcoin. And you have just how bad the dollar really has performed. If you look at the statistics, actually, believe it or not, I think it took gold since 2011 to reclaim its all time high. And it's not done that you know, permanently by any means. And Bitcoin has reclaimed its all-time high. It's not taking more than three and a half to four years each time to reclaim its all-time high. It's really one of the strongest. If you were to take all the stocks and assets and put them into a bucket and look at them, it's one of the strongest in the market and has been actually for some time, despite the narrative being so negative towards it. And I believe the neg negative narrative is coming from um, those who are not used to seeing emerging tech, old-fashioned financial types. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was watching an interview with Tim Cook on CNBC the other night and he was asked, you know, are Apple going to participate in, I suppose, the democratization of Bitcoin? Mm. And he, he said that that wasn't the plan at the moment. And the interviewer asked him, so do you own Bitcoin? And he said, yes, I do. I own, I have, you know, diversified my wealth and I have invested in Bitcoin. But the question was very pointed. Uh, the interviewer asked, did he own Bitcoin? I was very curious to hear his view on the wider ecosystem, like Ether, for example. Are you, are you a bull, a bear, or neutral on Ether? Or do you have a view, Beth, on their one smart contract platforms? Do you have a you know, do you have a view on something deeper than, than Bitcoin? Yes. You know, Ethereum is the layer one. Um, you know, we do, we do hold that in our portfolio, but, but I think it's been at least six months that we've encouraged people to diversify and hold another layer one because Ethereum is coming up against some challenges. Uh, mm. The gas fees are really high. I'm sure you've heard of that, but in case the listeners haven't. I wrote about how Time Magazine put up some NFTs called Time Pieces and the cost was supposed to be one Ethereum, which would have been roughly 2,800 at the time. And mm. by the time the transaction went through with gas fees, um, one person paid $70,000. Wow. Yeah. So obviously something's not working. I mean, you don't have to be mm. um, a blockchain engineer to know that that's not... <laughs> That's not going to sustain. Um, yeah. So anyways, it's merging over from proof of work to proof of stake, which has been all over the headlines for a while. And it was supposed to kind of, it was supposed to technically have already happened, um, but it gets delayed frequently. And so even when proof of stake, the merge occurs, there's still a couple more pieces that need to go live, which are called shards and then mm -hmm. um, rollups. So shards and rollups probably won't be live until... 2023. So there's an interesting window of opportunity for competitive, you know, competitors, because most competitors had launched with proof of stake or something similar. Some have proof of history, things like that, but they're, they were, when they launched, they were prepared to scale. And now when I say prepared to scale, just, I can give you some comparisons so people truly understand the thesis in as simple terms as possible, because that's like, we've talked about my background. That's my that was always my role is like, how do you discuss it with a, with a, um, mm. with a sixth grader or even a, you know, 12th grader <laughs> when it comes to scale, what I want to really point out really quick is that Ethereum has about 1 million daily active users at its peak. You think about a Spotify or a Twitter, they have 300 million active users in that app alone. 
you we all know Facebook has two billion. So like, how do you even go from a from from layer one kind of breaking, so to speak, or having these exorbitant gas fees at only one million when the world is really the capacity is more a couple hundred million per app, couple you know single digit bill. I mean two billion, three billion on across you know all mobile, so- both operating systems. So. Just to give you an idea of like how Ethereum is already starting to break down a little bit, it doesn't mean Ethereum's out for the count. It just means sure. diversification in the layer one allocation is important. I have so but. many questions that I'm going to dodge because I will unveil to you how truly ignorant I am on the subject. But what I'm getting is that you, correct me if I'm wrong, you are regarding Bitcoin more of a hedge as opposed to like a superior investment. Am I right in saying that? Or do you Actually, see it as an investment? Is it is it a great investment or is it a great hedge? So I, this is the this is the key point as to why Bitcoin is in my top five and was the first one of the first things I covered after we launched the premium site two and a half years ago. I, like I immediately covered Bitcoin to stock investors who nobody was nobody I'm aware of was covering Bitcoin for those looking for like an Nvidia position at the time. And I was like, we, you know, Bitcoin is a really big deal and I don't, you know, it may throw you guys off, but I'm going to make sure you're aware of it is because the beauty of it is it's both. And so, you know, it's an emerging technology that solves potentially the greatest need and pain point of global populations, which is the financial system, the lack of trust, inflation, things like that. And it's clearly a store of value because we have so many companies adding it to their balance sheets. Mm. Um, Oh yeah. That so that would prove to me that it's not just Bitcoin Mac, you know, maximists that think Bitcoin is a store of value, but companies are adding it to their balance sheets and they're probably preparing for you know a real bear market. It the mm. bear market is an inevitable. And the tough part for tech investors is that for true tech investors, um, not those that want to like exit and then you know say tech is a terrible investment but like those of us who truly believe 2030 is going to be gangbusters for those who held through any ups and downs which i include myself in the 2030 crew you know bitcoin will help help us get there it will Mm -hmm. reduce the pain if it gets tough and i'm not going to close out of my hard-won positions so it'll help as a hedge so that i agree with that what you're saying and I think even in bullish bull markets, though, we've seen Bitcoin perform well, too, is basically my my point. And that the fact it has reclaimed its um, all time high every three and a half to four years shows its strength long term as well. It's the NBA playoff season in America. Am I right in saying that? Is it over? (laughs) So are you up for a round of stock playoffs where I name several pairs of stocks? And in each case, I'm going to ask you to pick your preferred investment, which will go forward to the next round. And we're going to play it all the way through to the finals. And I don't want you to think too hard. And I don't need you to give an investment thesis on any of them. I'm just going to give you two names. And you're going to tell me which one you prefer. And you're going to let your inner Jedi speak. Are you up for it? Sure. Okay. Airbnb versus Atlassian. Who's the winner? I'm going to go Atlassian. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I hope you know all these companies. Clover versus Lemonade. Um, I would like to say neither, but... <laughs> right, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not okay. super strong on the consumer side. I, I do a consumer mm. company every once in a while, but... 
Okay, we're going to knock them out. We're going to knock them out. They're dead. They're gone. They're out of the competition. Shopify versus Etsy. Shopify. CrowdStrike. Now, I know as a gene sequencing um, expert, you'll know this one, CRISPR technologies, who aren't in gene sequencing, I understand. But so CrowdStrike versus CRISPR. I'm going to go CrowdStrike. Mm, Being as you're not into retail, I don't know how you'll feel about the next one, but iRobot versus LoveSack. Neither. Outside of my scope. Gone. Bang. Out of the competition. Goodbye. Teladoc versus Unity. Unity. Stone Cove versus Virgin Galactic. Neither. Yeah, gone. Out of the competition. Pager Duty versus Open Door. If I had to choose, I would go Pager Duty. Okay. And then the last one in this round, okay, before we go on and move to the next, to the semis or quarterfinals, I think. DocuSign versus Altrix. I'm going to go with Alteryx. I like kind of like where it's at. It's gotten beaten up, but mm, both, it are, is, yeah. both have big hurdles okay. right now. Okay, let's go to the next round. We're going to the playoffs here. Atlassian versus Shopify. Shopify. Okay. Uh, CrowdStrike versus Unity. Wow. I mean, I would have to go Unity. Which mm, is tough, but I'm going to go Unity, yeah. Yeah, it is a tough one. Okay, and... Uh, I'm going to leave, oh yeah, Pager Duty versus uh, Alteryx. I'm going to go Alteryx because there could be some big data and analytics tailwinds in our future, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with Alteryx based on where I think, okay. Uh, yeah. In Okay, in some strange bride of Frankenstein final where there's three teams, okay, we've got <laughs> Shopify, Unity, and Alteryx. Uh, I've always said Alteryx. How did you pronounce it? I was Alteryx. Alteryx. Okay. Well, we're going to, I, I think we that will hear that. <laughs> is that so? Okay. So here we've got the, the finals is got, has got three teams never heard of before in NBA history. Shopify versus unity versus Alteryx. Who, who are we going for? <laughs> Who's the winner? <laughs> Who's your favorite? Ooh, it's so tough. It's obvious. For me, it's definitely between Shopify and unity. Um, can you give me a year? Is it this year or is it like... Oh, I, so look, I, I'm, I'm always 12 years from now, but I should have really introduced it like that. But say as many years out as you wished, let's say 2030. Oh boy, that is super tough. I'm, I'm going to have to go Shopify, but I really like, you know, Unity is going to be with us in 2030 for sure. There's yeah. no doubt. Okay, now, now here, here's the wild card. NVIDIA has just entered the ring and Shopify is just about to pick up the trophy. Who will you go with for 2030 Shopify versus NVIDIA? NVIDIA. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure everyone's sitting on the edge of their seats Nothing on that beats one. NVIDIA. That is <laughs> awesome. So guys, if you're not listening to this in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you want to listen to the rest of this interview with Beth, however, and find out what the one investment is that she's most excited about right now, Jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of the interview for free. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or guests that you'd like us to interview in future, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you find us on. Thanks so much for joining us today and we'll talk to you as normal next week.
My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 